Hello and welcome to Spin Unspun, the podcast about leaders and leadership in the world of corporate affairs and corporate communications. I'm Damien Reese from Instinctive Partners, in conversation with the best and the brightest in corporate affairs, asking all the questions and discussing all the topics that really matter to people who shoulder the weighty responsibility for corporate reputation and effective communications. Today, I'm joined in the Instinctive Studio by Stephen Doherty, Chief Brand and Corporate Affairs Officer at Aviva. Stephen, always great to see you. Thanks very much for coming in. Not at all. Good to see you, Damien. And also today, I'm joined by my Spin Unspun co-host from Instinctive Partners, Ellie Day, an associate partner here at Instinctive and a specialist in big brand communications. Ellie, great to see you. How are you? I am very well, thank you. Excellent. Good. Okay, Stephen. Scotch whiskey and Guinness at Diageo. Yep. Barclays Bank, Aviva. I think it's fair to say it's been quite a ride so far and you're you're probably a man with uh, quite a few war stories and certainly a lot of contrast uh, in your career so far. Could you maybe share with us a, a sort of defining moment from each of those three jobs that you've done that maybe sum up the differences uh, in all of them or you know some of the key things you've learned from from those three jobs which are pretty pretty diverse yeah sure um look i suppose uh thinking back to diageo days diageo at the time was actually a quite a young company um it had been created uh sort of 10 years prior by the merger of uh, Guinness and Grand Metropolitan and was kind of an unwieldy uh, conglomerate uh, after after that merger. Um, but had gone through a big strategic repositioning where the then CEO, Paul Walsh, took the business out of all sorts of weird and wonderful things like Burger King and Intercontinental Hotels and, uh, and General Mills and various other bits and pieces and, and, and focused the business on being the world's premium drinks uh, company. Um, and when I joined the company, actually, it was about two years after the completion of the divestments that led to uh, the creation of, of, of the Diageo we know today. And what you had was a burgeoning confidence um, amongst management and a desire. Always dangerous. I always think. dangerous. Always <laughs> dangerous. Um, but they had kind of proved over the previous two years that the model, that the bet that they had made um, was the right one and, and was paying off. And so with that confidence came a, came a, a desire to, to you know, be more of a corporate actor, to assert, it, assert itself more. I remember the then CEO, Paul Walsh, said to me, you know, nobody drinks Diageo, Stephen, so I don't care if they know about us down, down the bus stop. But there were lots of stakeholders um, who did want to know what Diageo thought about uh, uh, topics like, for example, responsible drinking or, um, or... People like me in the media. People like you in the media, indeed. Um, and so, you know, with that confidence and, you know, that sort of pull from stakeholders to know more about the business, it was a very interesting time to come in as a, as a corporate communications professional and, and really start to build um, that corporate reputation signature for, for Diageo. It was, it was a company that really took off uh, so in some respects, you know, I was I I had some great material to 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 use. You know, the the business was uh, was as I say, commercially hugely successful. Its stewardship of the brands inside there was uh, was uh, fantastic, and indeed I 
I think Diageo is the best curator of brands uh, to this day in the world. Um, and the share price tripled in, in sort of a five-year period. So, you know, it wasn't, um, in terms of the material I had to work with, it wasn't the toughest gig I've ever had in my in my so career. And um, and I worked at that time for a, someone who's a bit of a legend in the comp space, a guy called Ian Wright, um, who was the then corporate relations director. And, and he, you know, he really had that kind of, Joie de vivre. Let's get after it. Let's you know, uh, uh, you know, be be proactive rather than uh, rather than defensive. And that was that was the spirit of that of that operation back then. Was you know, how can we get the next win? How can we get make the next amazing connection? So, so was the risk actually making sure you, that you reined in uh, the the company in a sense? In yeah, terms you of didn't. What it was you saying. didn't. You didn't want because it was to, a success story, and it success was success stories success. are not without risk, are they? No, they're not without risk, and and you know, you set yourself up on a pedestal only to be knocked off, I suppose. Um, and we didn't want to come across as 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 arrogant, but we did, I think, have uh, the right to project confidence in the business and what the business was accomplishing. Um, we wanted to be leaders in the in the industry, and we wanted, and with that means taking leadership positions on perhaps some of the big public policy questions of the day, the big social issues of the day. Uh, as I said, responsible drinking, uh, you know, binge drinking was 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 um, was a thing <laughs> uh, then. And it's uh, really interesting this because, and we'll, we'll we'll come on to Barclays in a minute because there's lots to say about that. But if you look at the tobacco companies, they are inextricably linked with lung cancer. Um, alcoholic beverage companies, however, well, let's take Diageo, um, they're not linked with alcoholism in the same way, if you see what I mean, in the public's mind or in the media's mind as, you know, tobacco companies. How we thought about it was there is there is no safe level of consumption of tobacco products. There just isn't. There are safe levels of consumption of alcohol. And we acknowledged very publicly that alcohol, if misused, could lead to social issues, you know, uh, could lead to health problems. Could, you know, we, we never resiled from being open about that. But we also asserted that, you know, at the heart of, you know, celebrations around the world every day where no one gets punched in the face and, you know, or, or ends up in, a, in, a, in an A&E department are people using alcohol appropriately to celebrate life every day, everywhere, which coincidentally was Diageo's corporate purpose, celebrating life every day, everywhere. Um, and so as long as you had the humility to acknowledge that the core product, if misused, could cause you know serious social and, 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 and health problems, um, then I think it, it gave us the license to say, but um, appropriately uh, uh, used, it's, it's in the middle of you know, celebrations and, and enjoyable occasions the the, the world over. So um, that's why I think we never really, uh, you never really ended up with beverage alcohol being being in that same position as, as with yeah. tobacco. And then you went to Barclays. Mm -hmm. Big difference. <laughs> you can say that again. Um, I went to, I went to Barclays because I thought it was a very very interesting moment. This was um, June of two thousand and twelve. Um, so a couple of years after the financial crisis. Um, and, uh, you know, the opportunity to work on the rehabilitation of an iconic brand within a reviled sector 
felt like it felt like my Everest. You know, I felt like that would be, um, you know, an extraordinary professional challenge, um, but one that I was kind of um, up for. Um, and you know, I I arrived. I was actually hired by Bob Diamond to be to be uh, corporate affairs director there. And uh, I arrived on the Monday of the week of the LIBOR scandal. Um, and for those of you who don't recall that particular scandal, there have been a few um, uh, over the years. Uh, in my opening nine days, um, the CEO, Bob Diamond, resigned. The chairman, Mar Marcus Aegis, resigned. And the chief operating officer resigned. So the entire company was decapitated uh, in my opening nine days at, at, at Barclays. Um, so quite a baptism of fire. Um, but in truth, that was the nadir, you know, that was like the, the, the floor from which we were going to have to climb back, you know, climb back up from, um, and did you, say? yes, but I acknowledged at the time that, you know, going in before I even was aware that this LIBOR scandal was coming down the pike, you know, I'd said to Bob Diamond in my interviews, uh, this is going to take, this is a five to 10 year project because you don't snap, you know, from, from an expulsion from polite society, which is essentially what happened for banks and Barclays in particular, you don't snap back to a position of being trusted and, uh, and understood. You, you know, it doesn't flip like that. You have to go through stages of convincing people, first of all, of your, you know, uh, uh, honest endeavor in trying to change the organization. Um, and that takes lots of individual actions observed over a period of years. You know, our corporate narrative for the first couple of years I was at, at Barclays was Barclays is changing. That was the corporate narrative. Now, we never used that as a, as a strap line, but, but what my people did was find evidence that supported the contention that Barclays was changing culturally, operationally, spiritually, if you like and then present those compellingly to, to stakeholders. And when stakeholders saw 10, 15, 20, 30 examples, some big, some small, some incredibly totemic, some seem apparently trivial, they would go, oh, maybe they are, maybe they are serious. And once you get them open to the possibility that you are prepared to change as an organization, then you can start to, to make some, you know, some inroads into, into turning that reputation around. So the strategy from your point of view then was you go in, you set management's expectations. You say to Bob, this is going to be five to 10 years. And then you break down the challenge into these steps, if you like. Uh, so uh, stage one, Barclays uh, is absolutely. changing. And then, and then uh, you know, Barclays is delivering on its promise and, and so on and so forth. You know, you, 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 you progress. But, you know, we we did succeed, you know. You, when I went when I went in there, this was a business that you know no one was taking their call. No politician would want to be seen dead with with a Barclays executive or or at a Barclays event or taking their calls. Um, the media felt like it was a free for all. You could write whatever you you know wanted about about Barclays, uh, true or otherwise. And frankly, you know, given that one of the defences to defamation, you know, defamation is lowering. Uh, uh, an individual or a company in the eyes of right-thinking people, you couldn't lower us. So no matter what you said about us, like I mean, we we couldn't have brought a defamation case against you. You, you didn't have a reputation. We to didn't have a reputation really. to defame, yes. right? And so, um, you know, I, I it was it was 
really, really tough. And look, it was very rough, right? Because there was a lot of, there were a lot of issues that had been kicked down the road for Barclays for years and years and years and years, because that was the strategy of the of the previous management was, if there are legal means by which we can, you know, put off the day of reckoning on everything from foreign exchange rigging to residential mortgage-backed securities to selling, you know, highly, highly risky long-term uh, uh, investments to people in their 70s and so on and so forth. I mean, the back book of, of Ordure was, was lengthy and it was important in terms of the cultural reset and back to this point about convincing people of a cultural reset that those things were dealt with and um, they were part of the evidence base of change, right, was the willingness to go, okay, We've done the wrong thing here. We're not going to use clever lawyers to, to, you know, to try and wheedle out of it. We're going to front up and 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 take the punishment. So, how did you feel in the first few days in role when you saw the mass exodus? Did it ever feel like it was a challenge that was insurmountable? Uh, no. Um, look, I, I mean, uh, I I I like the bowling a bit fast um, in my career and. It was such a high octane moment that there actually wasn't time to pause or or blanch in the face of the of the gunfire, and and in truth, it was quite important for the team that I didn't uh, appear to be you know uh, thinking the world was going to hell in a handcart. Um, so you would go up to the top floor and you'd be in these councils of war and you know surrounded by lawyers and executives and. And what have you, and and it could feel very, very dicey. But when I went back down to level ten, where my team were, I had to I had to look calm. People were looking at you for cues in those moments. Like, are you? If if I'm panicking, Lord knows, you know, it's time to it's time to panic. So I think holding your nerve is 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 really important. And you know, it wasn't my first rodeo, so. Um, you know, you just kind of have to, you kind of have to get on with it. So clearly then you, you've dealt with lots of crises in, in the line of duty, uh, and it's a big part of the corporate affairs role. Um, so to what extent do you think that it can really be a strategic role when it's so much based in sort of, I guess, firefighting? Um, look, there's there's strategy because you're, you're trying to divine the best way in which to handle uh, a particular issue. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a great believer in... Um, you know, opening the opening the kimono. So let me give you an example. So you know, when we were when we were handling, um, you know, the then CEO Jess Staley was being investigated for potentially, you know, uh, having tried to out a whistleblower, and he's under regulatory investigation. And we were coming up to the time when we had to announce that externally. And of course, the strategy of the lawyers and the and the company secretariat was to say as little as possible about it. This is a regulatory investigation. The you know the right course is a two-line RNS that simply notes the fact that the group CEO is under investigation and and nothing further. And I said, no, look, strategically, that's not going to. If he's going to survive the opening three or four days of this story, um, then. You know, having the media drag the details of it from us is going to make that the prospect of his survival to actually be able to go through the regulatory investigation almost a not you know a, a non-runner. And I said, actually, what we should do is we should surprise by being incredibly fulsome 
in the explanation of what's gone on here and why the board feel it's right to continue to give the, the CEO his backing. And completely unusually and surprisingly, we issued what turned out to be a sort of a two and a half page long RNS, which gave chapter and verse on the circumstances that led uh, to the regulatory investigation. I mean, surprising levels of detail. It's a really important lesson, this, for people uh, in corporate affairs and corporate comms, which is that the lawyers are not always right. And it's so hard to persuade the board, to persuade the executive, that actually the lawyers aren't right because they're, they're held up as these uh, these great owners of the truth. But quite often from a reputation, and, and, and as you say, Stephen, strategic point of view, there is another side to the story. You can tell it differently, and they're not always right. Yeah, I look, I'd agree completely with that. And I, I've had my experience over my time in corporate life of, of, of lawyers who are incredibly constructive yeah. and want to and understand where I'm coming from and want to aid me in that endeavor and actually keep me out of trouble. And then I've had instances where it's the department of no, because that's the least risky op- option. And and actually, when you when you probe into what the legal rationale for it is, there isn't a legal rationale beyond you, you're creating legal risk. And and it's and it's um, and it's difficult. I was lucky in that at, at Barclays, we you know we had some pretty open-minded uh, lawyers, including the general counsel, and so we we were able to to do a lot of the things that we wanted to, wanted to do from Barclays. You've gone to Aviva, and I, I expect your 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 weekends must be a, a bit quieter now. Now you, you're 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 at Aviva, the late, slightly less late nights, perhaps. It's it's like going from from like eight and a half years in Vietnam to to back to peacetime and transitioning into peacetime. But it was a really interesting moment to go to Aviva. You know, um, a, a new CEO, a very different kind of CEO for for a business like that. Um, basically starting a strategic transformation of of that business and the opportunity to be part of the leadership team uh, that will, over the next, you know, three, four, five years, um, hopefully successfully prosecute that. But some of it was was about was about Amanda, the the CEO. You know, I, I think to be really successful in corporate affairs jobs or corporate comms jobs, big corporate comms jobs, you've got to have the right relationship with the with the CEO, you have to you have to believe in them. You have to want them to succeed, um, and con- consequently, they they want you to succeed. When you were talking about Barclays and going up to the top floor, and it was sort of war room and in the deepest crisis, you started to talk about what sort of person you had to be, particularly with your own team. And obviously, in that instance, it was all about being sort of calm, as it were. What, what, given all your experience, what do you think makes a really good head of corporate affairs? What do you need uh, in your armory? I think, I think you, need, uh, you need good judgment. You need good instincts. Um, uh, do you need to be a diplomat? So, uh, sometimes, but sometimes you need to be the person who asks the right question in the room. What, what do I mean by that? It, it, the LIBOR scandal is a very good example, right? When we were in those war rooms, the question, the unspoken question that was being asked in that, uh, trying to, we were looking for an answer to in that room was, how do we save Bob Diamond? That was the question we were asking. That's the wrong question for, for Barclays. That was the wrong question. 
the right question should have been, what is the right thing to do for this institution and its, pro and its prospects going forward? And if you'd asked that question, then the answer would have been, Bob, I'm afraid when we announce this, you're going to have to resign uh, because the trauma to the body corporate will be much, much less than you being, you know, what, what happened subsequently. So in your role as head of corporate affairs, are you advising, are you loyal to the to the chief executive or are you loyal to the body corporate, as you call my, it, my, the PLC? My, my paycheck is signed by the, comp by the company, not by the CEO. So the CEO is, is, is important. Um, and, you know, as the figurehead of the institution and all, and all of that. So protecting their reputation and looking, and looking after them is in and of itself important to the company, right? But he, he or she knows that, presumably, that you are fundamentally looking after the corporate body. Yes. How, it's then difficult, is it, not to build a relationship of trust, isn't it? Because if the CEO thinks, this guy, Stephen Dirt, has not actually got my back, no, I I think you can I think you can you? I think you can absolutely strike strike the balance. Um, you know, it it is it is in the company's self interest for the chief executive officer to be well regarded, right? And so, consequently, I have a professional duty of care to try and achieve that that objective, right? There's no conflict there between what the company wants and what the what the chief executive wants. But ultimately, particularly when you're in moments of, you know, very, very, you know, almost existential high drama, and I was in several, sadly, uh, uh, during my time at, at Barclays, you need to ask that question, what is the right thing to do for this business right now? Now, the answer to that might be, the right thing to do for this business is to do everything we can to keep that CEO in his seat because he's so talented or she's so talented that it's, you know, that's that's the answer to the question you've asked. What is the right thing to do for this business? Um, and that is the right answer, right? So when when the whistleblowing scandal blew up at, at, at Barclays and I delved into the, the circumstances, and the answer to the question, what is the right thing to do for Barclays, was try and keep that CEO in his seat, right? It was a critically important moment in terms of the operational transformation of the business. If he'd gone, it would have been, you know, that would have been completely derailed. We'd have had a complete strategic reset again for the umpteenth time in X number of years. Uh, it, that was the answer to the question. And so we went to the mattresses. Um, but if the answer to that question had been actually the least traumatic, you know, outcome for the business is for him to pack his bags and go, that would have been the advice I would have given to the board. But given the Epstein connections mm. that came out subsequently, do you still hold that view? I mean, would I'm, it have been I'm, better to avoid that? Or, I'm or hugely fond of of Jess Daly. I enjoyed every minute of my time working with him. Um, you know, it's still subject to a, um, a now disputed regulatory outcome. So I've got to be a little bit careful uh, what I what I say. But I never, uh, I never, I have no regrets whatsoever about the efforts I put into uh, trying to. Uh, you know, protect Jess's reputation during the during the uh, on any of these matters. So, looking then to think a bit more specifically about financial services. Um, so, Barclays, Aviva, clearly two of the biggest financial services organisations brands out there. Do you think that they're winning the reputational battle? Would you say that they are? Look, it's it's um, 
Aviva is a really well-liked brand. So interestingly, although I, I, both businesses are in financial services, I wouldn't say Barclays is a, a liked brand. I think we got to the point where um, it became uh, trusted again and it became uh, respected again. Um, but I don't think it's beloved. And I'm not sure banks could ever get to that to that point of view. Aviva and all the research tells me this is a really well-liked brand as well as a trusted brand. Um, so it is possible for actors within financial services to to get to a good, you know, to a good place in terms of how uh, customers and other stakeholders um, feel about them. Can you see a future in which banking institutions are loved or should be loved by consumers? I think individual brands within banking could pull it off. So I look at a brand like First Direct, uh, which I have my bank account with. Uh, First Direct, you know, you look at the net promoter scores for that for that brand. Um, they're phenomenal. Like they're like Apple level of of net promoter scores. Um, so it is possible through you know good you know great customer service. They do they you know I've been with that bank twenty five years. I I do genuinely like them. So I think individual brands could 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 do that. Do I think do I think one of the monolithic ones like a HSBC or a or a Barclays could pull it off? Uh, it's, it's, that's a heavy lift. That's a different. To what degree do you see that as comms role versus, you know, you spoke about customer service and that being your kind of experience of, of the brand. But to, to what level is it comms job to? It's, it's, it's communications job to compellingly present evidence that, that our desire to care for customers is true and real. It's not about spin. So the business, of course, the business has to do things, and that's things like, you know, new product development. Um, you know, what's what's your what's your wait time when I when I you know call your call center? You know, if you're a truly customer centric organization, I shouldn't be holding for 28 minutes to get a to get a call answered, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it is about it is about corporate action and the business manifestly living that you know if you if you genuinely are interested in the customer and the customer's outcomes and then it's communications job to compellingly present that evidence not spin but the evidence uh that 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 is true and real uh and and also to do things like pointing out where there are contradictions in in the product suite for example to the contention you know if you're if you're if you were in banking you're charging you know extortionately high interest rates on on credit cards, but claiming to be on the side of the, you know, the underdog, that's not really going to. And your job is to call that out internally. Absolutely, to call that out and say, here's a, here's a contract, you know, and sometimes just to say this is not territory that we can credibly stake out because of these uh, Achilles heels, if you like, within within things. And how do you do that? How do you identify that? So you know, within Aviva, say, would you would it be at the point where you're developing your messaging? You know, how how do you find out when something's not working and a claim cannot be made? Well, look, we're I, people who work for me are embedded in the in the in the individual business units. I myself want you know want to understand the business. You know, I'm I sit on the executive committee. I'm in the I'm in the conversations that are about running this company. So you have a high degree of 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 understanding. But as we start to frame you know a corporate narrative and think about like what do we want to be renowned for? What do we want to be known for? In service of the business's strategy. We do pressure test that, right? So we we might say, you know, what, what we want to be known for is being on the side of 
of customers, and then we will pressure test that, right? Can, could we credibly stand that up? Um, and that's all done in the developmental work around, around, the, around thinking about what our corporate narrative should be. In your job, who is the most important, consumers or shareholders? I would say at Aviva, it's customers uh, are, are absolutely the number one concern. And frankly, if you get it right for customers, you'll be doing it, you'll, you'll have a crack in business and your investors will be happy as Larry because you'll be throwing off cash. Um, look, investors, of course, are a very important constituency uh, for us. Um, um, you know, one of the stories that we have to tell in a corporate affairs department is the equity story for, you know, the, the, the investment argument for why people should, should want to be owners of the company. So in terms of where we are at the moment for consumers, how do things like, like, for example, the cost of living crisis, how does that come into the communications equation at Aviva? How do you approach that? Of course, the, the business itself is thinking about how, how it responds um, because this, this is, this is a, 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 you know, it's a, it's a crisis. It's a crisis. And it's going to get much more acute. I mean, I know um, at the time of recording this today, the, the new Prime Minister of Great Britain, Northern Ireland, has just announced a big uh, package of, uh, to help people with, with, with uh, energy bills. Um, but I still think we are in for a very torrid period in terms of the, you know, the, the economy and, and how c- consumers feel the pinch. And we're, we're looking at that in real time, right? And, and uh, you know, what you know, we do want to stand the post. Amanda, I know, said to me, said to the board and to, to the rest of us um, uh, at an offsite uh, uh, earlier this year, just said, look, you know, the cost of living is, the, you know, is financial inclusion is, is the next frontier for us in terms of both how we show up as a company, but, but in terms of, you know, our community investment and, and, uh, and the kind of programs that we're running there uh, and pivoting those to be much more about cost of living and, and, and support for, for individuals and for, for businesses. We've got a lot of businesses who are, are our customers. Uh, and, uh, and we've been doing that, you know, at, at pace. I, I can see why you would, you would obviously take cost of living seriously and want to not just talk about it, but, you know, engage with it from a, from a commercial and a, and, a, and a product sense for Aviva. But where, where does a company draw the line in terms of talking about stuff going on in society like Black Lives Matter, Roe versus Wade, Me Too? Isn't, uh, don't too many companies jump on too many bandwagons these days? I, my, my, view, my view is I think the age of what I described as corporate moral agnosticism is over. Um, and has been for a, for a few years now. You know, when I think back to my early career, um, both as a consultant to companies or or in in corporate jobs, um, you know, the ability to avoid answering the big social questions of the day, the big moral questions of the day, by basically saying, "Look, mate, we're you know, we're just trying to sell a bit of booze here. You know, go ask the politicians what they think about that." Um, you could you could get away with that. Um, but I think there's been a shift, maybe occasioned by the explosion in kind of social media, um, that uh, ability to, to avoid having a point of view on these things, I think, has, has been, been removed. I also think that one of the ways in which all stakeholders, but, but customers, kind of appraise a company is, is about its character. You know, um, I can look at a company and say, well, that company 
you know, sells insurance products, sells pensions, sells sells savings, and they seem to do that very efficiently. And I think they, I probably trust them as a brand. Um, but one of the ways in which I think about, you know, is that where I want to take my business to is, you know, uh, their values, your point of view, your character, you know, what, what kind of company uh, is it that I'm going to be doing doing business with? And I think some of the signals that you send about your character are done through taking a position on some of these some of these uh, big big questions of the day. I think setting yourself up as you know some sort of moral commentator would be a huge error. But I think there are some issues that are just so important to be clear about where you stand on them: diversity and inclusion, climate, so on. And how do you define at Aviva which are the topics that you want to talk about or should be talking about and which you don't? We have look, we have a light, we have live conversations about these things, uh, you know, at the executive committee, at the board, uh, uh, all the time. Um, you know, our board has reserved uh, reputation, and that's the sort of label we put on, you know, relationships and how we show up in society. Is taken that as a main board uh, matter, and that's great, and 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 great that it's not sort of hived off to some distant subcommittee. Um, so we, we we talk about this stuff all the time um, in the same way that we talk about, you know, our view on, you know, privately we'll talk about our view on politics all the time or public policy all the time. Um, it's a live conversation and I can't, see, you know, a modern company that wants to survive that's not, you know, thinking about these topics um, as well as talking about, you know, How's the profit and loss account going? Is is kind of doomed doomed to fail. But the more you talk about these topics that are going on in society, the more political you become as a as an animal, as a as a company, um, which in and of itself can be quite risky. Um, um, to what extent can businesses safely delve into this world of politics, basically, and mix? Do can business and politics? safely mix without things exploding eventually i think i would i think i would say in uh in matters of policy um particularly policy that's going to you know have an impact on the on the business in question not only do you have the right to be involved i think you've got a sort of a fiduciary duty of care to be in that conversation about those about those policy shifts i think when it crosses over and into raw politics, which I, I, I see as distinct from going in and having a conversation with a minister or going in and having a conversation with a member of parliament or an official about uh, to basically make your case for a, for a particular uh, policy outcome. I don't see that. I mean, of course, there are politicians in those conversations, but I don't see that as inherently political with a small or a big, big P. I think if we were, uh, if you cross the line into, you know, taking taking sides, particularly publicly, um, uh, politically, then I, I think that's a line that no sensible corporate um, should cross. I think the most recent sort of live example of, of where, you know, Brexit and, you know, where where were you as a company on Brexit could have been seen as having a political point of view as opposed to just a policy point of view. The Scottish referendum back in 2014, I recall, you know, uh, many companies with big Scottish footprints agonizing over, you know, Sort of pissing off the SNP by coming out against um, uh, uh, Scottish independence, because that was seen as political, not just taking a policy point of view. Um, so you can you can get yourself in trouble 
or potentially in trouble in some of these some of these things. But I think it I think is. We'd look back now on, on the Scottish referendum, interestingly, and probably say that companies who did come out and say independence would be a bad thing from our stroke business point of view. I think presumably we'd say that they probably got it right, didn't they? I I, I believe. I, I remember um, standard standard. Standard Life, for instance, were a big, a big company that eventually said something. I think, I think they did get it right, but the risk that they ran, the theoretical risk, but it didn't come to pass, was that the, you know, subsequent to the uh, uh, referendum, the, you know, the SNP government in 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 Edinburgh would then wreak revenge upon you. Um, that was the that was the fear. I mean, it didn't happen like that because, you know, uh, grown up political parties don't do, you know, don't follow through on those sorts of things. But that's the risk you run on on topics like that is that, you know, they'll they'll get you afterwards. But um I I'm very leery of of corporates getting, you know, getting into into political waters. Presumably would you would you make the differentiation between talking about how politics might impact the business or your industry versus politics for politics sake? For us it's not it's not about how politics might impact impact the business it's about how the policy of a particular political point of view might impact our our business and remember like from, you know our board has a fiduciary duty of care to try and you know protect and sustain the business and move the business forward and we as an executive management team feel exactly the same way so um i i think you know getting involved in in policy debates and sometimes you know largely we want to have those conversations privately right we don't we don't need to be you know, taking big, big public positions. Sometimes we need to take public positions. Solvency two reform is a good example of late, where it's you know it's very clear that what the government wants to accomplish out of the back of solvency two reform is to unleash a lot of private sector investment into into infrastructure projects up and down this country. And we'd love to, as an industry, the pensions industry, which has huge you know, amounts of money, billions to, to invest. We'd love to be able to do that. And we'd love the Solvency 2 reform to unlock that uh, opportunity. So we have been probably a little more public uh, in our uh, in, in making that argument uh, uh, publicly. Um, and again, that comes back to, to strategy. We've, we've, we felt that that was the right strategy um, in, in, that, in that instance. But largely, I think, and to be respectful, you should, you should you know, you should go and make your make your argument, and if your argument, if you get a fair hearing for your argument, that's as much as you can you can reasonably expect. I think, um, and we're lucky in that you know because of Eva is regarded in the way it's regarded, we can we get that access. You know, Amanda was sat next to Quasi Quarteng yesterday at the at his first round table on you know investing. We we are able to have our case heard and and. And it's perfectly legitimate for us to be an actor in that and, and to be to be involved in that conversation. Stephen, tell me who has been the most important uh, person in your career in terms of mentoring and influence on you. I'd say probably, I'm going to go back to my first job at a university. I, I worked for a Labour MP called Janet Anderson, who was the Member of Parliament for Rossendale and Darwin. And I went, I went and took a job in Parliament. I got a job in Parliament while I was waiting to become a famous actor. And I just went there because I thought that'll be interesting. And I got the job on on the on the day I graduated, and it was about three weeks after Tony Blair had become leader of the Labour Party. And I went in and I worked for this fantastic woman who, um, and I found out that what I wanted to do for the rest of my life was be in communications. Um, 
she gave me the opportunity to do everything from media relations to strategizing. She took me into the smoke-filled rooms. Um, uh, I, had a, I had a ringside seat at one of the most exciting political, you know, campaigning organizations in the in in in, in political history. Uh, it was uh, in terms of as a formative experience for my career. And I always say to her when I see her. Um, I saw her actually for the 25th anniversary of the 97 uh, landslide on the 1st of May uh, in, a, in an unglamorous boozer in uh, Clerkenwell. Uh, and I sit there, like I always credit her. She was, the, she was the reason I've ended up where I've ended up today. And outside of the job that you currently have, is there a, G, a dream job for you in communications? I'd love to run a big international agency one day. Um, this isn't a job uh, um, application, by the way. Uh, I loved my time in agency. Um, I had 10 years agency side and and um, I loved the variety. I loved the challenge. I, ro- I loved running a business. I loved like having a P&L. I loved, I loved all that aspect. I loved sales. I really liked sales and I was quite, quite good at it. Um, and the sort of temptation, because that was the pathway I was on, the sort of things like unfinished business that I never you know, ended up sort of revitalizing some, you know, moribund, tired international agency. So that'd be quite good. Um, or a big FMCG or a big oil company. I, I think, you know, I'll be at Aviva for a few years, inshallah. Uh, but I think if I, if you know, the next thing I do will either be another big corporate job that's got something very crunchy about it, um, uh, or I, I think agency. And so to that, to that young Stephen Doherty starting out in life, um, what would your advice be now um, with the benefit of all your hindsight? What's, the, what's your advice to a young person trying to climb the notoriously greasy pole in corporate affairs? I'd say um, be, be, be curious about all of the disciplines um, within, within corporate affairs. Um, I am. I have. I have worked in every single one of one of these. I wouldn't claim to be a, to be a master in all of them by any stretch of the imagination. But I think having that broad-based understanding of this craft uh, is is really super important. And wherever you can see an opportunity to build muscle in another discipline within corporate affairs, you should you should seize that. That opportunity, um, and it's certainly something I encourage in, in the folk who work for me is, is is that kind of mobility around around the disciplines, and then I think just being be open to possibility, right? I mean, I, I've I've had a very serendipitous career in many respects, in that the right gigs have kind of come along at the right time. You know, I didn't I didn't uh, you know the the Diageo opportunity didn't come up because I was you know out on the jobs market. It came up because I. I was a consultant to Diageo. They were creating a director of communications job and they came to me and said, would you be interested? And I went, actually, that would be really interesting to do for the next thing in my career. And then the Barclays job, and actually, weirdly, the decapitation right at the start of it was incredibly serendipitous, it proved to be, because I don't, as I said, I don't think we would have done that culturally. So I think just being open to possibility um, is is a really important uh, mindset. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing your insights. You've been listening to Spin Unspun, the podcast from Instinctive Partners about corporate affairs and corporate communications with myself, Damien Reese, and my co-host today, Ellie Day. Ellie, thanks 
for joining me. Our guest today has been Stephen Doherty, Chief Brand and Corporate Affairs Officer at Aviva. Join us again for our next episode of Spin on Spun, details at instinctive.com. Find us on social media on the usual channels. And if you'd like to get in touch about uh, the podcast, just drop me a line, damien.reese at instinctive.com. Thank you.